Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 17th, 2018. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and today we have a special episode of the podcast to present for you. If you're a regular reader of SlashFilm.com, and I hope all of you are, you may have seen that over the past few days, we published a number of articles on the site celebrating the 30th anniversary of John McTiernan's action movie classic Die Hard, which turned 30 this past Sunday. The articles that I contributed for this series were full of interviews, and I'll link to both of them in the show notes, but in the first piece I spoke with cinematographer Jan DeBont, writer Stephen E. D'Souza, and actor Reginald Vell Johnson, who plays Sergeant Al Powell in the movie. In the second one, I reached out to a handful of modern directors and writers to find out what kind of impact Die Hard had on their careers, how it influenced them, and more. I'd encourage you to read both of these articles in their entirety, but instead of talking about movie news today, we thought it would be cool to share some snippets from a few of those interviews, including some stuff that didn't make it into the final articles. First up, here's a story from Jan de Bont about how the production used experimental military technology to capture one of the film's most memorable shots. The, the sequence where Hans Gruber falls at the end, I've heard that there was like a countdown for that, and Alan Rickman was released at sort of an unexpected time to get his real reaction as he fell. Is that true? Yeah, it was a really difficult. What what we really wanted is, in fact, you know, when you see those shots happen, it's always on blue screen, and and we wanted to really the most important reaction on a person's face is the first second, and when, if a if a person really falls down from away from camera free fall, it is it goes at such a high speed that you cannot get the focus right. Mm-hmm. It is that's why we never do nobody ever does it. So we had we, we had to we designed a system where there's a, a computer that tries to set the focus at the rhythm of the speed he's falling. So we had to do a couple different ad, uh, uh, tries with different people, and and it was a really difficult rig, and because they had and nobody had ever done that, and it was from a really big close up. I don't know if you still remember. It's right in the face, oh, yeah. right in his eyes, and then you see it, and it's a little, and because it's also in slow motion, so anything that would be out of focus would be out of focus for a long time. So the the focus was so difficult that no no um, focus puller could ever get it right. Uh, that would be uh, impossible for the for the person. So we were finally able to do it correct, and then and then you yes we always. We never know where you should never tell exactly 
when it's right because then that if you say they're gonna drop you at three then the the actor is gonna respond right always a fraction <laughs> so you have to it has to be always at a you should hardly ever do those things on on one two three go it's like yeah. it's one and then we know it's gonna go on two or it's gonna go on four and so quite often it's better to wait a little bit and then one two three and then he's the actor tends to get a little confused and then you dropped and then you get the best reaction right <laughs> yeah the the thing about the focus polling is amazing i've never even thought about that before but of course that must have been incredibly difficult to do it so because it goes so fast yeah because it starts i mean he starts about i mean like maybe um like two feet away from the lens yeah and then he goes from two feet to infinity in no time <laughs> it is, and, and if you want every every little frame of that, you know, which were uh, quite a few hundreds of frames to be in focus, it is like an impossible task. And and it was basically something that was invented for the military, I think. And, and they were just experimenting with that. It was a little company in the valley, and we and they, and they had never done it for film either. They had done it for for uh, some kind of. A video shoot for the military, but but this was we uh, adapted it for us and ultimately worked. <laughs> yeah, man, that's great. So so did you like do a lot of um, prep and testing with that before you actually got uh, Alan Rickman uh, hooked up? Like, how many takes did he do for for you guys I to actually did, nail I that? I think he did three takes. Oh wow! Okay, cool. Yeah, and 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 the, because because sometimes you know. Uh, is more quite often and this uh, actors is, is a surprise reaction but not we didn't want it just a surprise we had, it, it, had, it had to be the realization that he's gonna die right right and 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 that is so the, uh, so you have to give the actor uh, I mean there's a case like this it's always better to have him make sure that he, when he falls he's gonna be safe when he hits the bottom yeah. <laughs> because he's gonna fall in a big airbag way down there but uh, but but most uh, most actors are so worried about about all those stunts and rightfully so and and, mm-hmm. and 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 they should be done safely. So once they know it's safe and they 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 can much better act and they feel. But then you still have to time it right. So you still have to surprise him when it really goes. Next up, writer Stephen E. D'Souza answers one of the film's most burning questions. There's a scene in Die Hard in which Bruce Willis's John McClane encounters Alan Rickman's villainous Hans Gruber on one of the top floors of the building, uh, Nakatomi Tower. Gruber adopts a fake American accent to try to trick McClane, but how does McClane know that Hans Gruber is a bad guy? D'Souza says it was all explained in an earlier version of the film. I didn't include this story in the article because I realized later that we'd already written about it on Slash Film, but it's still cool to hear the writer himself explain it. Here he is. People never always have a theory as to how McLean knew. How did McLean know that Alan Rickman was a terrorist? Mm-hmm. So everybody has a theory. What's your theory? Um... I, I, I mean, I guess I don't have a fully fleshed out one. Maybe just that he would know that uh, that nobody else would be up there wandering around. Um, I, I don't know. What did, what did, what did no, you no, settle on? The, the, here's the thing. When, when it's all tied into the same thing. Uh, when when uh, he kills the first terrorist, uh, I think his name is Tony, the brother of uh, the other guy. Of Carl, uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Carl's brother. I think his brother's name is Tony. Uh, anyway, uh, he kills that guy. He realizes he's dead. And he searches him. So if you remember the movie, you've seen it recently, uh, like you say. Yeah. Uh, he searches him. He looks at his clothing. He looks at his driver's license. 
he uh, finds his cigarettes and he looks around before he takes the cigarettes, it always gets a laugh which you saw it with an audience because he's a cop, like he feels guilty about stealing the cigarettes. But then he looked at his watch, which also played as a laugh with the audience that they were always going to take the watch, but he's really honest cop. He only took the cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, he searches each guy. Each time he searches a guy, he takes their ammunition and he goes to their pockets each time. But as shot, each time he looked at each guy, he noticed their watches. And that's because, and then when he got on the phone with uh, um, the, the police outside, and he said, listen, these guys are professionals. They're professional equipment. They're highly trained. I think they're from Europe, from their clothing. I think they're labor, their, their licenses are like the best I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And they all have the same watch. He, he said that. We filmed that. Right? Interesting. And then when he lit the cigarette, when he when Alan Rickman, uh, he lit cigarette, as filmed, Bruce noticed the watch. His eyes actually looked at the watch. Oh. And we were always oh, so smart. We talked about watches. We saw he noticed the watches. He told the police the watches were a clue. Look how smart he is. And I'm in the audience. I'm as smart as he is. But where this went horribly wrong goes back to the ambulance idea. We did not know how the bad guys were going to get away, except they were going to pretend they were killed in the explosion. But we hadn't articulated it further. Mm-hmm. By the time, it was really two weeks before the end of the shooting, and I said, listen, I did this in another picture that nobody remembers or everybody saw, so uh, let's do it again, uh, escaping in our fake, you know, uh, uh, I did a sort of a, a thing called The Spirit, which is based on the comic book, mm-hmm. the comic strip character. Yep. I did a, a backdoor movie pilot in like 1986, which was so, in a way, like back in that era, like it was sort of like the original Adam West Batman. It was a little bit over the top, and the villain in that was going to blow up a children's hospital. A children's hospital was specialized in, in, in like, it was like it was like Shriners orthopedic things. So there were all these kids in like casts and wheelchairs, and it was like so over the top. You would have blown up and escape this ambulance. So we said, we'll do that again. So now we shoot the movie. We have the first cut, and you know John McKeon is there, Joel Silver there, Bruce Willis is there. Um, there are a handful of people. I was there with my wife. Maybe twelve people, key people. We start to run the movie. It's temporary track. Sometimes it says shot missing, you know. But we all we know how to. Uh, you know, parts of a movie like that. Right. All of a sudden, at the same moment, everybody goes, your children goes, oh shit, hold it, stop. Stop the projector. Because we realized when they got off the truck, Alan Rickman said to them in German, they paused, he said, gentlemen, synchronize your watches. Mm-hmm. And McKiernan had the camera crane up a little bit, they all put their hands out, and they all reset their watches, it went boop, right? Which established the watches, and it all paid off. But now we realized, as they stand there, there's no ambulance in the truck. Oh, right. Because we hadn't thought of that yet. So now, John turned to um, uh, Frank, I guess, Frank Ariosti, the, the, the editor, and said, you got to get the scissors in there the minute they get off the truck. Wow. And and if you look at it again, you'll see that they, they, they had to like get them off the truck, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're paying attention, you can see there's nothing there. But now he said, and also, take out all the business with the watches. Oh, I see. So it was it was all right in because that same... The audience, the audience yeah. hasn't been told they all have the same watch. So now, except for the first one, where it plays as a joke, like he's thinking of taking the watch. Right. All the subsequent, you know, uh, of him going, hmm, you know, like that emoji where you got your hand on your chin? Yeah, yeah. All, those, all the moments where Bruce did that and saw the watches all had to go on the cutting room floor. Interesting, okay, yeah. And finally, that meant that the, the, the alternative shot that's not in the movie anymore, 
clearly went over to the watch. Like, was devoid of meaning, so that came out. So you're left with this thing that I guess he's such a good cop, he has an instinct for these things. But I've had so many people come up to me with this theory. Uh, a lot of people say, well, because the weight of the gun is different with the uh, magazine, the bullets in it, and that's why, he's, but that makes no sense because he switched the, right, the other guy had not handled the gun. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, pe people are desperately trying to go, well, when he handled the gun, the weight was different, and you know, no, no, he did, the guy never touched the gun, you know. <laughs> and of course, the, the, what makes the scene work so well is uh, John, who has a great, like, uh, I, I would almost compare it to Hitch Hitchcock, a great uh, idea, a sense of what he can do with the camera to uh, to control the psychological reaction of the audience members. If you watch that sequence again, as it as it begins, as it develops, the camera begins to go off angle, the Dutch angle, as we say, mm -hmm. right? And then it comes off sticks, and it's handheld. So there's a gradual, uncomfortable feeling of seasickness that develops in that scene as you, the viewer, become convinced, oh my God, he is going to trick. And it's getting worse. And as he, and, and, and when he says, what's your name? And he says, uh, Clay, Bill Clay, mm -hmm. right? Then, the, then it really gets seasick and haywire after that because he's guy so smart, he thought of that already. So if you watch the sequence again and sort of just pay attention, look at the edges of the frame, and you'll see how subtly it goes from being confident and secure, you know, to match uh, the uncertainty in, in in Bruce's mind and yeah. of course yours as to what the story is on this guy. That's incredible. So that's the one that I, I would think people would ask me more often: How did he know he was a terrorist? For the second article that I wrote, I spoke with actor-comedian Paul Shear, who is a friend of the podcast, and he explained how Die Hard inspired one of his TV shows. I mean, I did a show called NTSF SDSUV, which you can see all of them on Hulu. But basically, NTSF SDSUV was my attempt to be an action star. I always knew like I could never do be in the movies that I loved as like the main lead. So what if I just created a show like this? And, um, you know, I, we definitely had homages to uh, Die Hard on our show and did things like that. You know, it's like, I think you're always kind of figuring out like, what could it be? What, what's the Die Hard version of this, you know? And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so for me, some very direct parody with NTSF. Um, and then, you know, and I think, you know, it's a touchstone from a creative standpoint. You know, it's like I even was working on a pitch the other day for a TV show. I was like, oh, we can kind of like just like this part of these like three episodes can kind of be like a diehard or kind of diehard episodes. You know, it's like you get caught up to it and you even see stuff like Game Over Man. It's like Game Over Man is essentially, I mean, that's diehard. It's just, you know, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I, I feel like in the comedy community, diehard is, is, is a is a go to as a writer and as, you know, as a performer too, because it also feels like, I think all of us feel like, oh, I could be, I could, you could cast me as John McClane, I could be John McClane, because at that point, Bruce Willis was the guy who was in Blind Date Moonlighting, which is like two shows that I loved, you know, that was like, you know, you know a, a TV show I loved in a, in a movie that I liked, uh, you know, so it was like that kind of like, he's the accessible guy, he's just a funny guy, he's an action star, you know, so I think that there's always that idea too, that you feel really connected to it. I, I feel like, Die Hard is really about like relationships at, at, at its core. Like, I, I while the action is great and John McTiernan is fantastic and jumping off the building and stuff like that, like the 
things that I remember about this movie, the things that I love about this movie, are not, oh, when he ties the fire hose around his waist and jumps off the building and the roof explodes. It's, no, it's like, it's the scene of him picking the glass out of his feet and talking to Al Powell. It's the, it's the idea of German bear bonds, which is as a kid, I was like, what is that? Like, you know, it's the, it's the characters, it's the relationships, it's the dynamics. And I mean, the Holly Gennaro, uh, like just the fact that she changed her name when he goes into Nakatomi, like like those little subtle things. It's like those are the things that I think when I think on the movie, what I remember, what I love is like these characters and the universality of it. It's like we can all imagine. Like, what if I was in a Christmas party and this thing happened? They're yeah. all innocents. There's no one in there. It's not like a it's not a team of cops. It's not. It's just people at a Christmas party. They're all every single person in there is. A normal everyday person, mm-hmm. and I think there's something, and I think there's something universal in the theming, and I think there's something universal about the characters, and they, that's why it doesn't feel dated. Here is Dan Trachtenberg, the director of Ten Cloverfield Lane, talking about the great Alan Rickman. The trick with Die Hard is that it spoils us. With, we're, anyone who's making movies is always trying to figure out how to make a, a great villain, mm-hmm. um, and you usually do that. Uh, in, in trying to relate to them and make them gray and and in fact, funny enough, I think the one of the best villains outside of Die Hard who is a is a gray villain is uh, Ed Harrison the Rock, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Die Hard clone. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, uh, but but the crazy thing is, I mean, there is a wonderful turn in the third act where you realize he's doing it not for these highfalutin reasons, but just he's just a bank robber he's just never you know never zealous bank robber but he's so good alan rickman's so good um and so scene chewy um and so mustache twirly he's like all the things that we think we shouldn't have in play in a in a modern movie to make it good to make a villain good but he does all of those things so well uh that he kind of ruins it for for the rest of us uh <laughs> trying trying to pull that off and finally, here's Brian Taylor, one half of the former filmmaking duo known as Neville Dean and Taylor, talking about how John McClane and Die Hard influenced Crank. The thing about Die Hard that really just, uh, it really slayed me as, as a young filmgoer was with John McClane. It was the nature of that kind of a hero. Because, like, that movie, it came along in an era where it's sort of like, you know, the action hero was, was this roided out, uh, you know, Uberman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with like this perfectly coiffed hair and, you know, <laughs> you know gigantic uh, power lifter kind of muscles yeah. and stuff like that. And, and John McClane came along and he was a very damageable hero. You know, this is a guy who had sort of like an attainable sense of humor, uh, an attainable body type, an attainable hairline. Mm-hmm. He was a guy that could really get hurt and could really get damaged. And it was kind of like watching the movie. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that he was going to make it through. You know, in 2020 hindsight, you're like, of course the was going to live. But similar to like, uh, I mean, I can't even think of an example from the time unless it's like a Jackie Chan movie. You know, you just look at the amount of damage that the guy is taking and the situation that he's in, and you're like, no. Oh, you might not make it. You know, this is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy can definitely be hurt. Um, so the idea of a of a hero that can be damaged and hurt, you know, that the 
of running through broken glass, even though you know, we always think we saw the running through broken glass. It's like the, the baby's face and Rosemary's baby. We never actually see it. You see the aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's such a, it's, that is so sort of like, an, it's not just a great gag that makes you flinch, but it's just so inherent uh, uh, to the conceit of the movie that this guy is damageable, he's fallible. And it's like the little things, um, but like little things can slow him down. You know, he wasn't like Schwarzenegger who just walked through a wall and damaged and take, you know, take a round from a shotgun in the shoulder and, and, and be fine. And this is a guy that actually broken glass on his feet can slow him down. Yeah. Hurt him, just like it would us. So he was, he just seemed very damageable and very vulnerable. And that was a huge influence on Crank where actually like the damage to the character became a plot point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like the more he's damaged, um, like he needs to damage himself even more just to kind of get through it. But every now and then, one of those perfect movies just comes along where you can just watch it a thousand times and enjoy it every single time. And the beats work every single time. And there's no such thing as like a spoiler in Die Hard, you know, because you know everything that's going to happen in the movie. You can't wait for it to happen. And then when it does, it's just so satisfying. It's just a deeply satisfying movie. And, when you know as a filmmaker how difficult it is to make a movie and how many things can go wrong um, and how many compromises uh, can lead concepts astray and you know to see something like that where just everything clicked like everything clicked from the script to the performances to the directing to the, the action visually even the music I mean to see something like that where it just all clicks, it's just like, it's so satisfying. <laughs> so, you know, it just makes it feel like, man, sometimes you just hit it out of the park. You can read much more about the making of Die Hard and how it impacted a generation of filmmakers in these articles at SlashFilm.com. And you can find much more about today's movie news and TV news and all sorts of stuff. We've got Comic-Con coverage coming up. Anyway, just bookmark SlashFilm.com. Check it out. And you can find more of SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on the site, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find, once again, at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really does help us out. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please take a second just to give us a quick rating. Tell your friends, spread the word any way you can, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.